Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we want to congratulate Ian on the success of reaching 1 million downloads in less than a year. Way to go, Ian, and way to go to all of you. A big thank you for listening and sharing with your friends and family. We ask you to keep sharing the word about Typology Podcast. And speaking of sharing, I want to let you in on a few things that are coming up on Ian's schedule. It's pretty great. Ian will be speaking at LeaderCast in Atlanta, Georgia, Friday, May 4th. So be sure and sign up for that. And if you can't make it to Georgia, you can find a location near you when you register today at live.leadercast.com. That's L-I-V-E dot L-E-A-D-E-R-C-A-S-T dot com. LiveLeaderCast.com. And also, there's a great opportunity coming up right here in our hometown. Now, I heard from several of you who were disappointed when you missed the Enneagram at Work conference at Lipscomb University this past weekend. I had several people saying, oh, I wish I'd known about that. This is your opportunity. And I'll just tell you, my wife went to see Ian at the Enneagram at Work conference at Lipscomb University. And her mind was blown. She was raving about it. It was her very first time to get to see Ian in a two-day setting with the panels. And she went on and on about how great it was. And I know that you will too if you attend this next upcoming two-day intensive in Nashville, May 17, 18, with The Nine. That's T-H-E-I-X dot co. The Roman numerals T-H-E-I-X dot co. Check it out. All right, well, that's it for our calendar and updates. Let's get on with the program here. Without any further ado, here's the host of our show, Ian Cron. Michelle Cachette, welcome to Typology. Thanks, Ian. I'm so glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Well, we've been looking forward to having you on as well. You are an Enneagram Type 2 uh, the helper, the giver. What I love is the new one that uh, my friend uh, Beatrice Chestnut, who also is a two, gave me another nice uh, signifier for you all is the befriender. Oh, no, I like that. Yeah, I've been very resistant to being a two. I took I took an online test probably a half dozen times, tried to retype myself. And uh, so befriender sounds nicer. Yeah. I like that better. It, it, I, that would have saved me money. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'm all about that. But uh, so why didn't you help me with that like two years ago? That would have been so helpful. Well, <laughs> you know, if we if we had known each other, I would for sure have helped. I promise. Even help though, me embrace my tunis. Well, you should. Now, if you could have been another number, what would it have been? What did you want to be? Well, let me give you some background. So when I first, I, you know, I stumbled on one of those online tests uh, at the Enneagram Institute a couple years ago. And when I took the test, the number two and six came out side by side, exactly the same score. Mm. So I looked at the titles of them and the descriptions, and I thought the loyalist sounded a whole lot cooler than the helper. And so I kind of said, that's what I am. I'm going to be that. <laughs> and then it took, uh, let's see, probably a year and a half of conversations with my therapist to realize how out of touch I was with my own self. And so now I fully realize that I am a two and I embrace that. But yeah, I was so resistant. I think if I could choose one to be, I would be a seven. Really? Yeah. What is it? What is it about sevens that that twos you think would like, uh, or that you would like? I love how carefree they are. How uh, 
you know, how they love this adventure and experiences. I have a son who's a seven and I mean, he's hilarious. He is so funny. We sit at the dinner table when he's home. He's now in the air force when he's home and, uh, he just talks the whole dinner and we just, we simultaneously laugh and try to eat at the same time. And somebody ends up choking because it's just hilarity the whole entire time. Yeah. My son is a seven and he just was home for uh, spring break. And he, uh, I took him to the airport yesterday. I dropped him off and I got in the car. I said, God, I love that kid. He's so full of energy, so full of life. And I need to go home and take a nap for about two days. Yeah. Well, that's true too. I only want him to come home for about a week at a time. <laughs> Is he a yard? Is he a yard sale too? Does that everywhere he goes? Does there stuff behind him? Um, somewhat, yes. Uh, except that he's in the air force, so you know he has commanders that are keeping him in line and making sure he picks up and doesn't have crap everywhere. But he comes home and it all comes out. So he'll come home on leave for a week, and his room becomes a absolute disaster of all of his stuff and. And but the good side of that is he has friends everywhere. That's the other thing is he just it's like he has a string of friends that follow him no matter where he goes. Mm. But sort of twos you guys do as well. That's why we, we you know, sometimes call you the befriender because mm -hmm. you all are professional friend makers. You you are like uh, people come to you like moths go to flame. Yeah, that seems to happen. It does seem to happen. And I I like that. I think what's been uh what I admire about the sevens that I don't have is there seems to be a lot of stress about maintaining those friendships for me. Mm. So there's always that sense of if I do something wrong, they're going to leave. Ooh, tell me more about that. Cause that's a very, oh. that's a two quality right there. It is. It is. So there's always this sense of, uh, people are only friends with me because I've done something to draw them in. But if I screw up, if I do something wrong, if I don't give the right answer or I don't show up when I'm supposed to show up or I somehow don't meet their needs in some way, they're going to be out of here in two seconds. Has that ever been true? Yes. Ooh. Yeah. I think that's part of why uh, it's so deeply implanted itself in me. I think that's been kind of an ongoing message since even childhood, the sense of I need to be a good little girl. I need to make sure I do everything really well, that I help the family out, that I make dinner, that I do all these things because then I'm going to be loved. And if I don't do these things, there's going to be a resistance, uh, kind of an emotional shutdown. That's one thing I experienced with my father. And he's he was a great man, but he was very human. And part of his history and his story is that he had that mentality or kind of that approach with us kids that uh, if we didn't uh, if we didn't do our chores, if we didn't do what we were supposed to do, if we misbehaved, then it was a withdrawal of affection, mm. a withdrawal of relationship. And then I've seen that repeated, maybe perhaps, gosh, we could get into a whole conversation about being raised in conservative Christian evangelical churches, that sense of uh, being good. If you're good, then God will love you. You got to mm. do all the right things and avoid the wrongs. And so that just became reinforced, whether through my own makeup or from outside forces. I think that just became a reinforced message. Yeah. So you've got this uh, this book that came out uh, called I Am. And the subtitle, mm -hmm. the subtitle is A 60 Day Journey to Knowing Who You Are, because of who he is, and that, that came out back in January, right, 2017? January of last year, yeah, 17, 2017. And it sounds like this theme, 
you know, that you're talking about right now is sort of interwoven, you know, into the narrative of that of that that book where you're really trying to answer the question, am I enough that that for women you're saying is a question that haunts that it's always right there in the background. Mm -hmm. Am I enough? Am I enough? Are you enough? I mean, how did you learn that you are? Is what, how is that a struggle for twos? How did I learn? I learned the hard way because apparently I wasn't going to learn the easy way. <laughs> the, the short of it is, so imagine the helper, okay? So I've, I'm, I'm that too, hardcore too, uh, and really do love people and want to help people. Uh, but over the course of the last uh, seven years, let's say seven years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer for the first time, cancer of the tongue, which, you know, I didn't even know something like that existed. Uh, so 39 years old, cancer of the tongue. Uh, but it was caught early. We had surgery, cut it out. I recovered. Life went on. And so as a helper, I get right back to doing my life as fast as possible, right? Because we have to do things in order to be worthy, in order to be loved. Fast forward. A few more years, cancer came back, diagnosed mm. with cancer a second time in uh, 2014. Once again, thought we caught it early, another surgery, took eight weeks to recover this time. On the eight week mark after my surgery to remove one third of my tongue, I went out and ran a half marathon because, you know, we get right back to life. Wow. <laughs> I know, insane. Uh, seven months later, ca cancer came back a third time. Mm. And this time it was more severe doctors made no promises of a cure had two-thirds of my tongue removed months and months of uh, really intense external radiation and chemotherapy that literally brought me to the brink of death so now mm. think of that in terms of a helper not being able to get off the couch for somewhere between like one to two years i mean yeah. where i was completely pretty much laid flat for a long time uh a two doesn't know who they are if they're not doing things for the people around them mm. and all of a sudden i could i couldn't even keep my own self alive i couldn't even i couldn't even take care of my basic everyday needs uh and so there was this sense of well who am i if i can't if i can't do what i do who am i if i can't get up there and will will anybody still want to be around me if all i can do is lay on the couch mm. So that process then really forced me to wrestle with who I am. And that I started writing this book uh, about six months after treatment ended. And it was literally a kind of like throwing up on paper, me processing through who I am if I can't do anything. And that was the beginning, just the barest beginning of this process of discovering my truest self. And it had to begin, this book I am began with me discovering who God is. Uh, because I needed to know who he was before I could ever begin to understand myself. Mm. Wow, that is an incredibly powerful story. And what a, I mean, uh, in a way, what a privileged journey, but also what a harrowing journey for a two to have to lay on a couch and receive help rather than be able to give it. I mean, that's a that's a painful oh, it was, journey. It was horrific. I mean, it was like my worst nightmare come true. Mm. I would have much rather been taking care of somebody else versus being the one that needed mm. care. And I think that probably explains why, you know, weeks, well, I'd say a couple months after that, I was getting back to ordinary life way too fast. Mm. 
because there was such a drive in me to do. I mean, I probably should not have been writing a book six months after treatment ended. I was in no position to do that. I started traveling again seven months after treatment ended. I had, was in no position to do that. But there was this drive of, uh, of, I mean, I don't even think it was conscious. It was like the subconscious drive. I need to get back out there. Mm -hmm. I need to get back up on the bike. I need to do something. And although on one hand, it probably saved me in some respects, on the other hand, what happened is about a year and a half after that, I finally crashed. And what did that look like? Uh, literally came to the absolute end of myself. Mm. It was, uh, and I haven't spent a ton of time talking about this publicly because it's going to be fodder for my next book. But uh, literally, I couldn't push any harder. Mm. I emotionally had nothing left. Spiritually had nothing left. Uh, all I wanted to do was sleep. Uh, I was pushing my body and my uh, my emotions, my heart, my soul, my mind far beyond my capacity to push. And so coming to that place of where now my body is whole, I didn't die, I survived cancer, but I wasn't sure I was going to survive the emotional fallout of going through all of that. Mm, so I have a friend of mine, he, he, he says that he thinks that embedded in the code inside the soul of every human, if we use computer language, which is not perfect, but embedded in the code, there's always one or two corrupt lines, lines that are, that are, uh, some people call them limiting beliefs or whatever it is. But so as you look back, you here you are, you're running at a million miles an hour. There's all this unconscious material. Some line of code is mm -hmm. wrong of the millions mm -hmm. of lines of code. What, what was the message in it that you were, not conscious of but was driving this manic behavior to get out there and do like what was the message in it do you think uh that's a really good question it's interesting i think some of it is some really bad theology mm. that i had adopted this sense of yeah this whole thing about grace you know we hear that god loves us and that there's lots of grace but you know if we don't work hard enough, then he gets pretty disappointed. Mm. You know, if we don't hold up our end, then what is our life really worth? Uh, so I think that's a piece of it. The other piece of it is, uh, I think, and I've heard this described about twos too, and this was very true with me, that I'm only I'm only as okay as you are okay with me. Oh, that's that, yeah, that was Michael Cusick. I'm okay. Yes. I, I'm a. I'm not okay unless you're okay. And that was wildly true for me. So I always had my radar on looking to see if people are disappointed in me. Of course, that's all perception, right? So I could perceive that somebody was, you know, disappointed with my productivity, or I wasn't doing a good job, or you know, if I'm traveling and speaking at a large event, if I didn't get enough response back, or whatever, that I must have failed. And so. You know, when you go, and this is a whole different kind of angle, when you go through significant trauma, those kind of things be, almost come on hyperdrive. Mm. And so that unhealth side of my two almost goes into hyperdrive as a survival technique. Mm. Mm. Wow. So, okay, I'm hearing so, many, so much stuff for twos to listen in on that I'm, I'm a little overwhelmed. So let me just go, <laughs> let me go to here. You're, 
Well, the the question you're trying to answer in this book is what's going on with this message? Am I enough? Right. And Mm -hmm. I think in your your point is that women in particular feel it. I would argue that all human beings. Yeah, I think all uh, human beings are struggling with it. I would say twos, threes and fours are particularly in touch with it because at its root, I think what you're describing, at least in part, is shame. Oh yeah. Uh, because the I like what uh, one, one author says. The and I think this is so true for twos. It, it's the trance of unworthiness. Mm-hmm. The trance of unworthiness. We kind of wander around in this uh, droopy-eyed, just you know, slack-jawed sleep, in which we are lulling ourselves into this hypnotic state with the phrase "not enough, not enough, mm-hmm. not enough." So it's like I didn't even know there was an alternative. Mm. Like it was such a real uh, thread throughout my entire existence that I didn't know other people lived without that, that constant fear of not, of not being worthy of not being good enough. So it was like this constant voice. Well, and that's the other thing I should say, I have a really strong one wing. So if you have a two with a really strong one wing, I had the voice that was constantly reinforcing that too. Man, it's not just about helping people. It's not just about being needed and taking care of others' needs. It's about doing it perfectly all the time. Yeah. So then you're talking, as you just said, you know, having a crappy theology of grace, essentially what you said, right? You have a a theology that reinforces the not enough message, the shame Mm -hmm. message. And so it's very hard for grace to get through. Now, we don't have, uh, not all of my listeners would self-identify as, you know, people of faith or Christians. We have Mm -hmm. lots of people of the Jewish tradition, atheists, agnostics, Buddhists, you know, we got them all across the map. But I I think grace is a universal word, right? Well, yeah, self-compassion or a lack of it is somewhat universal throughout all of those. So how do you get it, you as a two? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> have you gotten it? Well, what are you doing? Come on now, Michelle. Let I them know. I would love to say I've gotten it, but that that would be a flat out lie. I have not gotten it yet. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Uh, and part of getting there is, you know, just to embrace the truth that we all have needs. We all uh, are broken in some way. We all have uh, some kind of ache or wound or whatever. This does not make me bad. This doesn't make me less human. It actually makes me more human to actually be able to admit and own the fact that, man, some days I just don't have it. You know, some days I, there's the best I can do some days is take a really long nap and that's okay. So Mm -hmm. some of it is just, uh, identifying with humanity as a whole. Uh, that we are all in this process of uh, making peace with our imperfection and our woundedness and all of that. And I could admit that and own that. Uh, and and there are actually some people that draw closer and don't run away when you finally own your needs. And that's been reinforced as well, which has helped to change some of the crappy <laughs> theology or the the bad code that took took mm. root in me. You know, I have a uh, a spiritual director. He's a Anglican or actually an Episcopal monk, and uh, he's really amazing. And one time, you know, I was talking about some painful thing in my own life and issues around shame. I'm in the shame triad, like you, in the twos, threes, and fours, and I which feels really good, doesn't it? Oh, it totally! I love it's shame. It's like a big party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> One big party. Welcome to the shame party. But, <laughs> but, you know, he said something to me once that was both at first when it came out of his mouth was kind of insulting. And then after about three seconds, I realized, oh, wait a minute. 
that's not bad news. He said to me, he goes, you know, everybody, Ian says, oh, you know, I hear your pain. Of course, I don't know how it feels. You know, only you know how that, you know, it's you, your, your pain is your unique to you. And he said, that's not true. <laughs> I went, what? He said, yeah, within a, probably a square mile of you right now, there's a lot of people who feel the same kind of shame that you do. They know exactly what you're feeling right now. Don't flatter yourself. You know what I mean? Like he was like really good. Oh, up, yeah. And he was like, and that's good news because it means you're not suffering alone. And you know, that, that may be part of what's helped me to come to a place of more self-compassion and self-awareness because as a, as someone who's a public figure who writes books and speaks and does podcasts and things like that, I get letters from people all the time who are in places of unbelievable suffering and they wonder, and you know, because of my medical history, I hear from people that are flat in bed and have been for years and they wonder if their life matters. Mm. And so that has created that sense of, you know what, we're all in this together. It's not just me. Yeah. We're all in this together. Yeah. And as a therapist, of course, I'd always been trained to tell people, you know, you know, your pain is kind of unique and it's special to you and I'll never know how you feel, but I'm hearing this. It's like, no, I totally know how you feel. Yeah. See, that doesn't help me saying that you don't know how I feel. I want you to step into it with me and have that community in it. Come on, join me. Yeah, join me in the shame pool. Come on, people. Yeah, There's plenty of room. It's deep out here. You don't have to stay in the shallow end. I can take you all the way in if you want to go. And if you're not here, I could give you a few lines to help you step into the shame. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Let me tell you what it's like and I think you're going to be okay. All right, so let's talk about self-awareness for a second because I, you know, one of the things about the Enneagram that I love is that it's not just, oh, I get to know my number. I just think that's a good first step that's called self-knowledge. But what I want to do is learn how to grow. Uh-huh. And you know what? I'm working on a book right now that's essentially, okay, now that you know your Enneagram, now what? Like, how are mm-hmm. you going to use that to grow? Mm-hmm. Because I get, I get worried that all we've done so far is give people a tool for figuring out what their dominant style is. And I don't think that's mm-hmm. nearly enough. So mm-hmm. it then becomes moving from self-knowledge to self-awareness, right? So self-awareness meaning in real time, how do you monitor and regulate your neurosis. <laughs> so, oh, I love that. That makes me so happy because that's exactly what it is. How do you monitor your neurosis? Yeah. Uh, well, gosh, I don't even know where to begin. There's so many things I'm doing right now. One thing I know I must do is it can't just remain head knowledge for me. I have mm-hmm. to take action. Uh, these long held 46 years of my life of operating a certain way. And like we, you know, if you study Enneagram, it served you as a survival technique early on. It's just not serving me anymore. So I have lots of decades of operating this way. I can't just journal about it. I need to actually put some small actions into step every day to help change Mm -hmm. uh, how I respond and react. Uh, And so some of that, like the, several days ago, uh, we were processing some really intense things here. Uh, and my impulse in that moment is to go take care of somebody else, bake somebody some cookies, text a, friend who, <laughs> text a friend who I know has been going through a hard time and ask how they're doing, right? To come up with about 10 things I can do for everybody else around me. And so one of the things I did for me personally is to stop and say, nope, you need to stay with this. That's big. It is big. It's huge. But I didn't want to just stay in my own head either. So then I chose two of my closest uh, truth-telling friends. And I texted them. And rather than texting them to say, hey, I was thinking about you, I texted them to say, 
I'm, I'm feeling needy tonight. I'm feeling insecure. Uh, some things are going on here. I just needed to be honest about how I was feeling to one other human being. I just want to let you know. I don't, you don't have to rescue or anything, but I just need you to know that I'm not in a good space. And, you know, if you can, you know, if you, if you pray, if you could pray about it, great. Or just, I just needed you to know. And that sounds so small, but for a two to actually admit their neediness is very difficult. It's huge. Because <laughs> it feels embarrassing. It's yeah. so embarrassing. I'm supposed to be helping other people. I'm not supposed to be needy. Right. And it's also, if I if I can say this, I just know this as a teacher, it's humiliating because it it actually it um it means having to be humble when your when your sin is pride it, and that's you know I mean so you now had you to get, bring up the p word yeah you? <laughs> dang it <laughs> calling you all kinds of bad names I'm trying to keep it PG but they may I just may call you all kinds of terrible names right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it is, right? Like, we've all got our stuff. Mine's envy. We had a panel of fours in early this morning, and you talk about people sitting around being envious and having to own own their stuff. We were, of course, fours are perfectly happy to talk about their pain out loud. But, but, but you know, your, part of your journey is learning to be self-aware of when pride is has uh when that when that software has launched what am i doing with all this computer language today but but you know when it's activated when it's triggered Uh and then because your your each of our deadly sins or passions are literally blind spots that's what they are so Mm -hmm. the the benefit of knowing that deadly sin is that's your blind spot now you don't have to live with it in the periphery of your vision where it's just out of sight it's like nope i know what it is i feel it going off and what you did is brilliant, and I hope every two heard it, and I hope every number hears it, which is intentionality. It's like, okay, I know right now I am being triggered and activated by this circumstance. Uh-huh. So in order to grow or experience transformation, I got to take an action step right now and and reach out. I can't just have it be like, oh, like right now I'm feeling this. It's like, no, I got a plan to begin to soften the grip of this thing on my life. Mm-hmm. I love that. I have a really good, I have a lot of friends who are therapists and I also have my own therapist. So that's proved to be very helpful for me, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I have a really good friend who's a psychologist. And as I was talking to her over coffee one day, she said, Michelle, uh, what I, what I think you should do, I said, please don't therapize me. You're my friend. And she goes, okay, but I still want you to do this. (laughs) I, I want you to look for ways to do small acts of rebellion. I said, now, so for a two with a one, I'm like, okay, that's heresy. What are you saying? That's not okay. <laughs> so small acts of rebellion. In other words, per- push against this constant need that you feel like you have to do things a certain way in order to be loved. To so do something different. Uh, and basically what she was saying is what I said a moment ago is it has to be an action. It can't just be writing and journaling about it or it can't just be talking with your therapist about it. I need to put into practice actual acts that are pushing against this long-standing habit of behavior that I'm now seeing and I'm aware of, but I can do something different. So what you're actually talking about is an ancient practice. You know, it's a, it's from Ignatian spirituality and Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually called for those of you who don't know, contra agere. 
And uh, St. Saint, Saint Ignatius of Loyola and then the Ignatian spirituality uh, tradition, it means to act against, literally, a jere contra. And uh, in, in ascetical literature, what, what it, it refers to is acting against behaviors that are not uh, consistent with our being made in the image of God and are not life-giving and which are holding us back from freedom. Mm-hmm. Con- so for, for those of you who don't know, look it up. Agere, A-G-E-R-E, next word, contra, C-O-N-T-R-A, working to work against. And so this is a spiritual discipline, right? So for me, I got to work against envy. I got to step back and say, not what's mm-hmm. missing, but what's here. Uh-huh. Like, what's here? And for you, it's like, uh-oh. And, so for, and also, there are practices, things I can mm-hmm. do to begin to work against the stream of decades of behavior that have not worked. I want to jump back, uh, Michelle, to this, this idea of transformation and what does it mean? Do you think that people, I mean, this is a, a weird question, but I kinda, I'm struggling with it because you know what? I'm speaking at LeaderCast. Have you ever spoken at LeaderCast? No, I haven't, but right. I've, I've watched it and it's excellent. Yeah, well, I'm terrified. But the point I'm going to make about it is uh, because <laughs> Is I, that the shame voice talking? Oh, totally. Ian, is that shame already oh, and you're not even there oh, yet? Oh, I am rehearsing for how bad I'm going to be regardless <laughs> of how good I am. <laughs> of I mean, course you are. Of course you are, because that helps so much. Yeah, of course it is. Super that helpful. Way, oh, yeah, because that way I'll be ready for the abandonment. Anyway, <laughs> of a hundred... Let me give you Michael's phone number. He does this really intensive counseling yes. therapy thing in Colorado. Oh, I'm going to go right from Atlanta to Colorado after <laughs> after 110,000 people reject and abandon me. Of course they will. Yes, please, please. In, in you di- might want to stay for longer than seven to ten days. Yes. Because diff- 110,000 people, that's a lot. 110,000, yeah. And they're going to do it in different languages. Of which, course. So the abandonment yeah. is now multilingual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How could it so get we, better? Yes, it's a multi-ethnic abandonment. It's yeah. awesome. I love it. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it with wild anticipation. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> yes. but, By the way, for those who are listening, I think Ian's like dropped down about five inches as he's talking about all the shame. It's just... <laughs> It's just waiting. No, I'm just <laughs> well, being a two, you're so attuned to my feelings, even through I a am. screen that you can tell am, that yes. that's what's I'm happening inside of me. Mine, but I can read you. Let me yeah. tell you. <laughs> I expect, by the way, I expect a text while I'm on my way home from this telling me that I'm, I'm enough. That's all I want to say. <laughs> I, let me put it on my Google calendar. Hold Thank on. you. <laughs> Write Ian and tell him he's enough. Okay. So we're speaking about change at LeaderCast and, and, mm-hmm. and I've been struggling with it. And self-awareness, by the way, is a huge uh-huh. theme at it this year. But between that and this book that I'm working on, here's what I want to know. How much can people really expect to change in this life? Because, oh. you know, because seriously though, no, come on now, let's, let's be honest. Because it could be, because I think to some people, if you say, ah, oh, not that much, there's a lot of those productivity, effectiveness, efficiency types that are going to be like, no, that's not true. I got to be able to do something to change. And I think others actually might be kind of a relief to realize, you know, actually there's so much embedded in here. So much is pre-programmed. You can only do so much. You just got to figure out how to be loved. Like which, hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I now, This know. is a very interesting question for me because one thing I didn't mention before is I have six kids, but the youngest three we foster adopted from a, a severe abuse and neglect background. Okay. Okay. So they came to us when they were four and five years old. And without going into any, any detail about them personally, uh, there, that is the question that is often 
proposed in a lot of the literature about kids who were severely abused and neglected in the early years of life, uh, can therapies really help them change? Is there really any hope? So once that uh, significant trauma happens in early childhood and impacts the, uh, the brain and the body and everything else, is it possible is it pro- possible for the brain and the person to heal and be different? Mm-hmm. And there was a time, you know, I would say, I, I'm not an expert, but, you know, decades ago where people said, no, I mean, the brain, once it's in, imprinted, you can't change it. But there's been a lot of more uh, recent research that talks about uh, the neuroplasticity of the brain and regeneration and how you can create new neural pathways and all those kind of things. And there's some great therapies for that. So... Uh, And part of my research with my children, but also with myself having gone through significant trauma, that's been a question I've really wrestled with. However, the one factor I keep coming back to is what all the research out there says about uh, ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences or trauma or whatever, is that the one factor that makes, that is the most definitive factor that makes a difference in whether or not a person can heal from these things is the presence of one stable, significant other. Yes. Which I find fascinating in terms of Enneagram, right? So when we use the Enneagram to just learn more about ourselves, self-awareness, but also if we use it to have more compassion for others, we create space and opportunity to actually step into each other's spheres, right? And to connect in such a way that does bring some measure of healing. Now, will we change our essence? Will we change the core of our story and, and how we've been shaped by it? Well, and part of me says, I hope not. Because part of my woundedness is exactly what helps me to be able to help others and to be present for others and to connect with others. So, so my, my take, at least where I am right now, as far as an answer to your question, is yes and no. Some things don't change. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But I think the things that uh, can change are the most important aspects, but they change in relationship with others. It can't be just self-awareness. It has to be interactions with other human beings who are also on their journey mm. of self-awareness. Okay, so you're onto something deep here. It's for all numbers. It's for all human beings. And what I'm hearing you say, if I were to unpack this, is first of all, I love that it is true that that whole idea of one relationship, one person whom you really trust and whose love, for whatever reason, and there, who for whatever reason that other person's belief in you lands in a deep place. It doesn't <laughs> doesn't bounce off, right? You, what you're saying is, as I hear it, is it no? Maybe the brokenness doesn't go away. I mean, you know, we've all got wounds, and guess what? There ain't enough time in this life for us to be able to heal entirely. Mm-hmm. But you, you can change the way that you regard the woundedness. Yes, yes. Turning it from my woundedness is a, is a flaw in me. I'm now starting to see it as a gift, which mm-hmm. is a very huge shift. That's an enormous uh, that's, shift. It's massive. I still don't always like how my default is to, like if I'm feeling insecure, that my default is to chase after people and make them love me. <laughs> you know, right. To try to fawn all over them and try to get them to like me. I don't like that that's my default. But uh, this woundedness in me has been far more potent uh, and far more, um, uh, well, it's just been far more potent in my ability to connect with others. Mm. Once I'm able to own it and embrace it, 
versus trying to resist it. And that's part of the journey, I believe, from uh, unhealth to health. Keep going. <laughs> from unhealth to health is to stop seeing as this flaw that I need to overcome, this flaw that is so defining of me. And instead seeing it, it's, it's, it's part of my story. It's part of the overall narrative. Now, how can I use this for the best possible good for me personally, but also for others? How can this become a means of deeper relationship with others? You know, on the Enneagram, and you're, again, you're the expert, I'd love for you to speak to this, but our unhealth our unhealth when it comes to our Enneagram number actually sabotages our relationships, mm -hmm. right? It creates disconnect. As we move toward health of our number, it actually creates portals for deeper connection and relationship. Mm. And then those relationships end up being more of a means of healing for us because yes. healing happens in community. It doesn't happen in isolation. That's right. Uh, so beautifully said. I don't need to add anything to it. In fact, let's take a collection and close in prayer. Uh, <laughs> for those that pray. Let's for those pray that for pray. For those who don't. Yes, for those. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love what, that, what Carl Jung says. He says, the greatest and most important problems of life are all, in a certain sense, insoluble. They can never be solved, but only outgrown. And I find that so interesting because I think in, in for those of us in faith traditions or in some therapeutic traditions, we think, man, we got I'm a problem that has to be solved. I yeah. got to solve me. I'm a four. I got to solve the problem of four using willpower. I'm always like, well, like, can you just I mean, I'm a, I've been in recovery in a 12 step group for 30 years. I can just tell you willpower sucks. There's, nothing, there's just really nothing about willpower that's very helpful. It doesn't work. <laughs> it does it, not work. It just work. makes you tired. It does nothing except exhaust you. Oh, my gosh. It is so dis it is so discouraging and so disappointing, ultimately. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I will go home to yeah, – anyway, I don't. I don't it's want like to being too... a hamster on the wheel. That's what willpower totally. is. You're just constantly moving. You're exhausted but never getting anywhere. Yeah, so what happens if – first of all, we get rid of the word change and transformation – in a way, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I'm just, this is, these are the things I wrestle with in my brain, you know? Like, it's like, well, because those words are misleading. Th those words indicate, oh, I can change, I can transform. And actually, you know what a lot of people are saying when they, when they say that is, I can come up with a new improved version of me. When actually, you have to transcend you. That's the journey. The journey is for yes. you to get over you, not improve you. And as long as Christianity is an improvement game, it sucks. It is not good news. Sorry for my language, but I am really passionate. No. <laughs> you're, you're on. I'm about ready to like raise hands and, and tithe and everything else. Well, all the prayer and fasting and giving. <laughs> Patreon.com forward slash typology. Thank you very much. <laughs> there you go, people. Donate now. Yeah. Calls. Yeah, operators standing by. <laughs> okay, so yeah, right, so I'm gonna throw a couple of like little blurbs at you. A little couple of little fill in the blanks as a two. Okay. I want you to be thinking, filter the well, two. I'm a two with a one. Now you're making me scared because I have to answer it right. Oh, yes. Perfectly. If you don't answer it perfectly. <laughs> perfectly. Yeah, I won't shame you. I will not love me. That's right. You won't need, I won't need to shame you. You'll do fine on your own. <laughs> yes, I will. Uh, okay. So I've asked this, of, I ask this of, of guests frequently. What is it inside you right now that is calling out for your acceptance? Oh. Inside me right now, calling out for my acceptance. Um, perhaps one of the hardest things for me post-cancer is the fact that 
I used to be a just major achiever, work 50 hours a week. I could work circles around other people. My capacity now is probably half. Mm. So what what is calling to me to to accept or embrace or be okay with is, you know what? I can work 10 hours a week. I can work zero hours this week. I could just sit and read books and paint my toenails. It's okay. It's okay. I did that last week. You painted your toenails? Oh, I'm yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's helpful. Yeah, I went actually. You know what I did? I, I, you I went, are a four. That wouldn't surprise me. No, that's totally right. I actually I went to the march in Washington, the March for Our Lives, uh-huh. and then that day, that night, my wife and this other couple who are friends of ours went and had our feet done. Hey. <laughs> because they hurt so much from being on our feet all day long. Oh my gosh. Anyway, all right. So here's the next one. For you as a two answer this question I will love myself when Mm. oh I will love myself when I'll say two things I will love myself even when I feel like I failed Mm -hmm. like I didn't do something right but I I, this is probably the bigger one I will love myself when a significant other a significant relationship in my life is frustrated or upset with me hmm all right, take it, take take me there. What is that? What does that oh, mean? Oh, you're gonna make me go there? Damn. Yeah, of course. I, I think we're done. Aren't we wrapped up? Isn't time? No, up? I have all the time in the world, <laughs> and I'm a therapist without an appointment after that this one. So me off. I'm not oh, real yeah. happy about this. And you know okay. what's really great? It's also I'm excited because I know as a therapist who does a 50 minute hour that it's usually in the last two minutes that a client actually says drops the bomb. <laughs> so here we go in the last oh, two minutes. That's so. the reason I want to get because I yeah I want to shut down right now. Okay. <laughs> Uh, go there. Um, because my drive is to be loved. Okay, that's the driving force is this fear that love is not readily available. So I have to chase after it and earn it. And if I don't, it will leave me. Okay, so mm. that love, which is what the great, you know, it's such a, it's the greatest force, right? And so there's this, this, I'm always, uh, I have this niggling fear in the back of my mind, that I'm not if people really knew I'm not going to be loved. Right. So uh, so when it comes to my most significant relationships, my closest friends, my spouse, my children. So, you know, I've grown children uh, when they express any kind of frustration with me or disappointment with me. I turn their frustration or disappointment or even anger as a lack of love. Mm. What that does, first of all, it's very unhealthy for relationships. If we can't allow people to be disappointed or frustrated or upset with us at any point in time, it does not create intimacy. You know, intimacy comes through emotional honesty. And sometimes emotional honesty is being disappointed or frustrated or upset with another person. But my inability to tolerate that puts up a wall in relationship. So when I said I'm going to love myself when... Uh, when a significant relationship expresses frustration, disappointment, uh, anger, whatever, I'm not going to make it so much about trying to get their love back, but realizing that love's already here. I can love myself. I'm already loved. Mm. I don't need to earn it. I don't need to react to their disappointment. I don't need to resist it or shut down or run away from it. I can be okay. Mm. That is really great. And I think it's also so instructive for twos because one of the things that can really grip the attention of a two is uh, a difficult relationship. 
It's like the easy relationships. It's like, okay, I can manage those. I can keep all yep. those people's needs met. But it's like the moment they run into somebody who's resistant or whose needs they are apparently unable to meet. The two is like, uh, I've got to try really I've got to redouble my efforts in this person's life. Yes. And if there's yeah, any, and exactly. if there's any friction, if there's any breakdown or friction in the relationship, they won't sleep. Twos won't sleep. Twos are always trying to make the most unhappy person in the room happy. Mm. Yes. So twos are always navigating all of their relationships and they find the person that seems the most disappointed in them and they're trying to change that, fix it, resolve it. It's like having it's like having one spot of coffee on your white shirt. You don't see the white shirt. You only see the spot of coffee. Yes, that's right. And so that's always been, that's been my radar. That's been my wiring. And so to sit there and allow a relationship to be messy and uncomfortable and unresolved uh, and just let it be what it is has been one of my uh, most challenging and difficult areas of growth. Mm. I, Not try to fix it. So we've got a lot of twos listening or a lot of people who love a two. Mm-hmm. And I'm, like you, interested in moving everything from information to to growth. We're not going to say transformation, even though it, it's a wonderful information to transformation. It sounds very... It's very <laughs> it, it just rolls off the tongue so nicely. Yeah, it's tweetable. Um, <laughs> So well, we're going to we're going to let go of that and say information, you know, information is not growth. I want you to t- share with some twos, one, two or three actionable things they can do for this Ajere Contra to work against their mm. tendencies, their the tendencies that restrict them or prevent them uh, from becoming the person they most want to be. So what are a couple things twos can do to unwind the negative side of their personality style? One of the first things I've done recently, I've actually shown some different uh, people that I'm coaching this, but on my desk in my office, right next to my computer, I've posted up a, an index card that simply says two words, I'm okay, period. Mm-hmm. It sounds so small and kind of silly, kind of trite, but literally reminding myself, no matter what's going on in my world, no matter the email that I receive from a disgruntled reader or, or right. the conflict that's going on with one of my children or whatever, I, I'm okay. And simply seeing that and then saying it out loud is me checking in with myself. Mm, I love that you say it out loud. Say it out loud because I'm checking in with myself. It's important. There's a lot of, you know, twos tend to get, at times, we listen so much to other people's opinions of us, we don't listen to ourselves. Uh, And so having that I'm okay and then saying out loud, I'm okay, I'm all right, I am okay. So I have a friend of mine who's a teacher, uh, she likes to say, uh, do you make regular visits to yourself? Isn't okay, that, that sounds great? so corny, but it's actually helpful. <laughs> it is helpful. Do you make regular visits to yourself? Because you know, tons of numbers don't. I mean, I make too many, but 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 other numbers actually rarely make visits to themselves. So, I, yeah, historically, I've not because no. that would be selfish. No, twos rarely make visits to themselves. They're always visiting other people's other selves. People. Yes. Okay, so there's one. I love that you've got this this little thing that you put up on your next to your laptop says I'm okay and you say it aloud perfect what's next and next is uh, (laughs) this is going to sound crazy I'll explain it intentionally do things that may disappoint other people (laughs) and let them prove you wrong ooh 
Okay. okay take us there. And I so, like for it. example, two in my head. Well, for example, yesterday, Easter. It's Easter. Uh, I need to make a big dinner for my family. I've got six kids. Everybody's expecting a big dinner, but I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. I'm tired. But no, I have to do this. Well, historically, I would go all out. I'd stay up all night cooking. I'd get up early. I'd go to the nth degree cooking ridiculous amounts of food. But I was tired. So instead, I'm going to keep it simple. I'm not going to do all of that. And some people were disappointed that I didn't do everything that I've always done before. Do it anyway. And then allow yourself opportunities for people to prove you wrong. And that, you know, the thought is if I don't do this, they're not going to love me. And more often than not, far more often than not, nobody cares. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're all fine with grilling something out versus a huge ham and turkey dinner. I mean, they're fine. I've even noticed this with some other friends. Here's another example. I, and I don't do this maliciously, but there's a sense as a two that I need to reply to every single text that comes into my phone. And I yep. get billions of texts every day. And I need to stay on top of that. And I need to be responsive to every email, every text, every message. And sometimes I will literally because I get lots of Facebook messages too, not respond, and it's not to be mean, but to not respond because that is not where my worth is. And to allow people the opportunity to prove me wrong. In other words, they're still gonna love me even if I don't respond to their text. So I actually, this is so great. I, uh, I'm working on a book right now. I've got a bunch of speaking things. I'm completely pressured and freaked out. Mm -hmm. And as a four, you know, in that hard space, I'm always afraid of disappointing people. I'm a very, oh, two, yeah. you know, I've got that sort of actually a little bit of a two-ish thing going on where I'm like, oh, man, I, if I don't answer every email, if I don't say yes to every coffee. And you know how it is, you know, when you've got a book out that's, you know, you've got some measure of success happening in speaking and, and everything. People do. And, you know, for me, because my last two books, one was a memoir, one's in the self-help psychology world. They don't send me things like questions like, what are you doing about X? They, they send me like four paragraph emails, these beautiful heartfelt <laughs> emails about their marriages yes. and, and yes. everything in me wants to answer as long in as oh, long a way. It has to be as long as what they wrote at oh, least. Because if, if you don't answer, I've received emails that have 12 page type documents, single, you know, single uh -huh. space. Uh, yeah. And my thought is if it's, if my email's not as long, I don't really care. <laughs> no, exactly. And so, and if people call and say, Hey, I'm in town for coffee. I know you don't know me, but I'd love to get together. It's very hard for me in some ways to say mm -hmm. no. So have you read the book Essentialism? Yes. Greg I McKe interviewed Gre Greg McEwen with Michael. So Michael okay. Hyatt. So he and I interviewed him. I got to meet him. Great well, book. Great book, right? Uh -huh. And he has that thing about emails where uh, he, he has in the subject line, I am in monk mode. Uh -huh. And then in the body of it, he says, dear friends, I am currently working on a new book, which has put enormous burdens on my time. Unfortunately, I am unable to respond in the manner I would like for this. I apologize. <laughs> Isn't that freeing? That's oh, my like, Lord. And what you're saying is do that and then realize that initially, and this is what he says, people will be disappointed. Mm -hmm. They may, their faces may fall. They look crestfallen, their voice, you know, whatever. But ultimately, he would say that, that they not only will still love you, but if it's not even that kind of relationship, they will ultimately respect your boundaries. Yes, yes. Well, and let's, let's take that word disappoint real quick. A good friend of mine, I'm a word person, so I love to take words apart, but she and I were talking about this idea of disappoint, that we don't want to disappoint people, but if you take that word apart, you're disappointed 
appointing them from having that authority. Mm-hmm. Disappoint them from having, disappoint them from uh, being the one to decide your value. Mm. It's not. It's not their job. It's not their role. So, uh, I I don't know where along the way we appointed them to have that kind of authority to speak our value, but we need to disappoint them from that. Yeah, I think what you're saying there uh, for me is, you know, we pin a badge on people and sort of elect them sheriff of our self-worth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so we're saying, I'm firing you. No more. You're fired. Yeah, exactly. Of course, they never asked to be hired, but right? No, we do this. It's all it's all part of our own neuroses, as you said. So yeah. as we disappoint them, it's just taking control of that neuroses. It's, the, it's that great Eleanor Roosevelt quote, right? No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Totally true. And I remember here, I love Eleanor Roosevelt, and I love that quote, but I didn't get it. I'm like, what is she oh, talking about? <laughs> I know. And now it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually have these little cards around the house that I, I periodically send out to people that they're maybe struggling. And that's 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 one for my friends who, you know, are, are getting beaten up in public or something, you know, like, don't worry, it's going to be OK. OK, third uh, little path for growth for. All right. For third one. And this is I've been doing this t- the last two years. This summer will be my third. Uh, and I kind of stumbled into it. And now in hindsight, I know the brilliance of it, even though I had no idea what I was doing for twos. You must make solitude a priority. Mm-hmm. Every summer, June and July, and part of August, I shut down all my social media. I shut down my email. I literally change the passwords on everything. And I don't tell myself what those passwords are. I shut it all down so I can't cheat. And I completely unplug so I can be present with myself and my life. So I can read. So I can kind of get grounded in who I am again. And that I'm not on this uh, kind of hamster wheel of soliciting attention. You know, that I'm always out there trying to read the market and see how the market feels about me. It's like, no. And that solitude has been life-saving for me. Mm. Absolutely life-saving. And it's counterintuitive as far as being a speaker and a writer. You're not supposed to do that stuff. Uh, I would not be able to continue doing what I am doing if I wasn't shutting everything down. It's the one thing that's keeping me alive. Mm. So good. I am so glad we had this time together. This was so much fun. Me too. I loved it. It's like a little bit of free therapy. and. uh, (laughs) Oh, I didn't tell you about the... Oh, the bill? Oh, the bill? Okay. The the uh meter's running? I didn't... Well, tell you what, when I text you after you speak to those 110,000 people and feel shame, let's call it even. Okay, totally. (laughs) Totally. I'll give you the time. Once I know the time I go on stage, I will tell you and tell you... I'll dig you out of your pit of shame and then we'll just call it even across the board. Yeah, we'll bring a backhoe because it can go there. (laughs) So anyway, new book... I am a 60-day journey to knowing who you are because of who he is. That came out in January of 2017. People get that on Amazon. Get it on Amazon. Get it on my website. You can get it anywhere. It's That's been right. around. So, yeah. We're, well, not that long. Year, year and a few months. Yeah, that's not very long. Yeah. Uh oh, there yeah. goes that. You want to get to work again. You want to get another book <laughs> out there. I actually am on deadline right now. So, yeah, I'm going to shut too. this down and get back to my research. Yeah, me too. <laughs> being, it's feeling like I've. Anyway, so, um, and then how else do people find out about you and where you're speaking? All the good stuff you're doing. 
Yeah, the best way to connect with me is through my website, which is uh, michellekashat.com, M-I-C-H-E-L-E-C-U-S-H-A-T-T. And everything about speaking, podcasts, writing, everything's on that site. Mm. All right, everybody, you heard it. You need to know Michelle Cushat. Obviously, actually, you kind of know her now. After an hour, uh, <laughs> certainly not everything, but you've certainly got a touch of uh, this incredible person's heart. Michelle, thank you so much for being on the show. Everybody out there in Typology World, thank you so much for listening today. We've already given you great tools for transformation and growth. I hope you wrote those down. If not, please go back a few minutes on this podcast and grab everything Michelle said because it was really, really uh, beautiful and applicable and actionable, which I just makes me happier than I can tell you. And remember, until next week, the words of the great author Oscar Wilde, be yourself, everybody else is already taken. See ya.